Hey, Avery, welcome. It's a delight to have you. I've been following your work for decades, as has pretty much the field. In fact, I would say the evolution of your career has paralleled a lot of the modern evolution of uh, as we move from gerontology to biogerontology, um, to geroscience, so from geriatrics to the latter two. Uh, so I've enjoyed going through a few dozen of uh, your more, more salient uh, publications and many commentaries over, over the last few decades. And I thought perhaps we could begin CBS 60 Minutes uh, on the BBC, The Guardian, Fortune Magazine, Washington Post, TED Talks. I, I remember your first big TED Talk very well. It was, I think, a coming of age for the field. Uh, Popular Science, Playboy, Colbert Report, Time, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and of course, the Joe Rogan Experience. So a very eclectic group, uh, which I think is uh, a sort of microcosm to your eclectic interests and the wide audiences. I understand that your background uh, was originally more along the lines of computer science, and you worked at a place that had the, the name Sinclair in it, but no relation to David Sinclair. Can you elaborate a little bit about your background and what brought you to geroscience? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I started out as a young kid, um, realizing probably around the age of eight or nine or something like that, that whatever it was that I was going to do in the world in my life, I wanted it to be impactful one way or another. Um, and, you know, obviously it took, a, it took a while for that to crystallize. But by the time I was about 15, I was sure of that and then I, I started programming so you know, I had my first course in programming found I was good at it so I ended up um, moving into um, the direction of doing artificial intelligence research um, and so I did my undergrad degree in the early 80s in computer science and uh, went on to work in artificial intelligence research for seven years or so um and uh so that was that that went fine um it was kind of um you know a good way for me to discover to, to figure out how to work on very hard problems um but during that time i met and married a biologist uh who's a lot older than me and through her i first of all accidentally learned a lot of biology which i had given up formal training in at the age of 15 um and i um also, eventually began to realize that she wasn't interested in aging. And I had never considered that anyone could not be interested in aging, um, that especially any biologist could, poss could possibly think that way. Um, but it turned out it wasn't just her. And, you know, biologists in general seemed to think that aging wasn't their problem. And I thought, well, that's completely crazy. So I happened to have been able to get into a very... Um, uh, convenient situation at that point where I had a job that was very undemanding but nevertheless paid the bills and gave me access to university facilities and so on so I was able basically to repurpose my spare time from AI research into the biology of aging and that's what I did in the I guess mid 90s um, and uh, yeah so that was that was how I got going. It's uh, interesting how serendipity affects our life course and but ultimately our most some of our most fundamental passions uh drive us my first experience with existential dread uh, in high school i remember that experience very well how short life is and uh that has always given me a sense of urgency in my own life to make an impact 
uh, you're the you're the first uh, podcast outcome of, of Project 49. I turned 49 last month, and <laughs> we can blame midlife crisis in some capacity for uh, going out of my uh, cocoon of keeping my life in silos, which was very convenient and had uh, a number of advantages. But it's a little bit like relationships; you can't you can't expect to reap the, the most out of them by, by keeping yourself invulnerable and um, uh, advocates like yourself and uh, scientists like yourself have been an inspiration uh, to, to many. I'm not alone. I wonder if we could maybe perhaps start with a few fun, quick questions before we dive deep and deeper into the literature. So one of them, uh, you so conveniently are stroking your, your beard in the manner of uh, Gandalf while, we, while we're conversing. And um, I love it because the question pertains to your beard. I've seen you answer this question before. I have an un, uh, like an unfair advantage. I've heard you, I've seen many of your interviews. So I'm going to try to get things at a different angle. Uh, being the figure of like Methuselah and you were involved in the Methuselah Foundation with the long beard um, or profit, like a sort of profit for, yes, we can do more than describe the biology of aging. We can do things about it, starting with uh, Cynthia Kenyon and, and, and Johnson uh, and others who found, you know, single gene mutations can dramatically extend C. elegans lifespan. Uh, you're sort of a prophet for the, the steps beyond that in terms of having more public discourse uh, with humans as the model for organisms. So does your beard in your own mind have symbolic importance that the way we communicate is vital to making this enterprise successful to getting there as far as progress as soon as possible. Well, so um, no, I don't really think of it as, you know, symbolizing anything. Um, I didn't have a beard at all until I was, I'm going to say, 32. Um, and I grew it really in response to uh, what, by that time, a five-year-long campaign by my ex-wife, um, uh, who had always been a, a bit of a fan of beards. Um, I wasn't really convinced and my mother badly didn't want me to grow one uh but eventually i thought well i'll do the experiment and here it and it came out you know like this rather quickly and so um <clears throat> uh that, that would have been a surprise but it was around that same time that i switched fields from computer science to um to, to aging so it became kind of a bit of a trademark and um uh, around the early 2000s when i started coming to the attention of the wider world a little bit more um, I also found that it was quite helpful from a credibility perspective because it kind of emphasizes and makes clear that I'm not, you know, in this for personal financial gain. I just kind of look unmaterialistic. Um, and so, you know, back then there was already this thing called the anti-aging industry that essentially consists of people who um, don't really know much about the field and who are more interested in making money, you know, essentially peddling things that don't work. So it was quite important to distance myself from those, especially because I was already making fairly um, dramatic claims about the likelihood of um, progress in uh, in postponing the health problems of late life. So, um, yeah, that's really where it came down to. And of course, it has become a bit of a trademark and um, it would be difficult for me to get rid of it now. But also, I wouldn't exactly say I'm a fan of beards per se. It's just that it's no trouble. You know, people always think, oh, you know, you have to have a big beard like this. You must, you must have to, you know, condition it all the time. And uh, it's nonsense. You don't have to do anything. Well, I don't have to do anything at all. 
I have another solution for that, Aubrey, which is which is my own. I shave once a week, so people see me all cycles because my I, my hair grows quickly. And I was saying the nice thing about the emojis: the emojis always well kept. And uh, but um, I think that there's something to embracing your your true self, and and there's an authenticity that comes across with that. And and, um, and also another fun. Oh, go ahead. And it happens that before I grew a beard, I did actually do the same as you. I was a lazy shaver. I would shave maybe once a week. Yes, precisely. Um, there's there's a beauty to efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I uh, as I was uh, perusing your uh, the, your literature, I came across your full name. I always knew you as Aubrey de Grey, and I thought I knew everything about you. I, you know, I read your read your book. I followed your 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 publications and your and your talks at various conferences and symposium, uh, but something that I have not uh, known is it's Aubrey D N J de Grey. Can you tell me about the middle initials if they have any significance at all, or, or just let people know what it stands for if nothing else? Yeah, they really don't have any significance at all. No, David Nicholas Jasper. Yeah, you know, just names that my mother liked. And it, it's, of course, it's a lot more common in the UK to have multiple middle initials than it is in the US. I, I find that in many regards, you're uh, an unconventional thinker. A lot of your work has been as a theorist, uh, looking at the space, asking a fundamental question. Well, asking more than one fundamental question. Some of it are the contributions you've made intellectually directly to the field as uh, in, in, in specific ways, like specific solutions, uh, theories that lend themselves to interventions along the lines of damage control, for example, a more sophisticated free radical theory that pertains to uh, the impact of mitochondrial and peroxidation of lipid addressing the extracellular matrix cross-linking and breaking and concept. So that's a part of your your thinking, which is the theory, and then engineering. And another part of your contribution has been how we interface as a field. One of the uh, more controversial areas in geroscience right now is how do we describe aging? The controversy regarding how we articulate the probability of success to various extents in uh, not not just lengthening lifespan, but the concept of uh, longevity escape velocity, LEV, which you you coined some time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I I wonder if you could first, just for those who aren't that familiar, contrast that from, uh, for example, the the singularity versus your methuselarity. Um, as, as a matter of framework and your conceptual model for how one goes about coming up with such an estimate in the first place. So, yeah, so the concept of longevity escape velocity is one that I first started putting forward around 20 years ago. And it's a very simple thing that arises from my realization from a few years before that, that um, the most practical, most like, most plausible way to actually bring aging under any kind of control to postpone the um, functional decline of late life uh, would be damage repair of one kind or another, as opposed to slowing down the rate at which the body creates new damage on top of what's already there. And um, the thing about damage repair is that you're essentially, um, I mean, the term biological age wasn't really particularly popular back then, but essentially you're reducing someone's biological age relative to what they were when you... um, uh, when you start treating them, uh, because essentially biological age is the damage that you are repairing. Um, 
Okay, so that means that if you take someone who's already in middle age, then in contrast to what would happen if you're slowing down the rate of creation of new damage, um, you have a much bigger impact. You know, creation of new damage, you know, it's added to what's there already. So you're only going to get a minimal impact if you start late in life. Uh, but if you're repairing damage, you can have a bigger impact. Uh, and so if we have therapies, if we have a panel of interventions that repair various types of damage, and they're not perfect, these, these, this hypothetical panel of interventions, but of course, that's very likely to be the situation, getting to be able to repair 100% of all the many, many, many types of damage that the body does to itself anytime soon is very unlikely indeed. So we have this panel that repairs most of the damage, but by no means all. But what that means is that you take someone who's, let's say, 60, and you um, take them back to being, let's say, biologically 40. So they won't be biologically 60 again for until they're, let's say, 80. And then uh, you can re-rejuvenate them. I mean, you can do this as, as often as you like. But the thing is that because the therapies are not perfect, there's going to be the difficult damage, which, which we can define as the damage that the therapies do not repair. Um, and it's going to carry on accumulating. So eventually we're going to get to the point, let's say when you're 80 or 90, when um, you're starting to go downhill, same as you would have done 20 years earlier in the absence of any damage repair. Um, however, it turns out that that's not the whole story, because during those 20 years, people like me, the research community, will have been beavering away trying to improve the comprehensiveness of these damage repair therapies. So that, in fact, by the time this person is 80 or whatever, we will be able to give them, you know, damage repair 2.0, which repairs all the damage, all the easy damage that was already able to be repaired by the first generation therapies. Um, but it can also repair some, albeit not all, of the difficult damage. So we will actually be able to re-rejuvenate the same people and take them back to biologically 40 or whatever again. Um, and the thing is that um, we buy more and more time as time goes on, because the residual damage that is still not amenable to repair by any of the therapies we've so far developed will be more and more, and more slight and will accumulate more and more slowly. And therefore, it will take longer and longer to get to the point where we need to have version 3.0 and 4.0. That's the big difference between the concept of longevity escape velocity and the concept of the singularity, which is all about accelerating change. Um, it means that it's actually much more certain that we will reach longevity escape velocity. And furthermore, that we will reach it and stay there. We will. It's vanishingly unlikely that we will get to that point where we are postponing the health problems of late life faster than time is passing and then have a really bad century and you know um end up you know falling below longevity escape velocity again that's almost inconceivable um so people so, someone else gave a name to that point where we first get there uh they called it the methuselarity um anyway so yeah that's the longevity escape velocity thing now coming back to the rest of your question um when I started out talking about damage repair, you know, it went through all those stages that new ideas go through. First of all, people just thought I was mad and they just quietly ignored me and decided that I would probably come to my senses at some point. And then when it became apparent that like the media were paying attention to what I was saying uh, and they started to, you know, um, ask my colleagues, um, you know, the next step was just basically to get the journalist off the phone before the journalist understood that the expert didn't actually know anything about what they were criticizing. Um, um, and so it was a case of, you know, off the record ridicule. And then there was phase three that started in about 2005, that um, in, was the you know, outright running battle um, to um, demonstrate whether this was plausible. 
And um, that was so successful by about 2007, 2008, that, um, you know, it became uh, essentially there was a bit of dust that I had to settle. But of course, eventually um, we got to the point where a bunch of very conventional and um, credentialed experts could write this paper called The Hallmarks of Aging in 2013, which has, of course, become by a huge distance the most highly cited paper in the whole field this century. And that means, the point is that since the first paper, I've never had to actually you know, spend my time justifying damage repair as the way to go to my colleagues. Uh, you know, that's now cultural conventional and the word rejuvenation has now become some, one that we don't have to you know, defend anymore. It's actually used by everybody. Whereas in 2004, when I, started, when I named my journal Rejuvenation Research, a lot of people thought, no, no, that's all about cosmetics. Um, uh but what this leaves is longevity escape velocity. So many people in the field have now complete, who have now completely accepted that rejuvenation is the way to go will still run away very fast when you talk about longevity escape velocity. So you, must, you might think, why? You know, it seems like to go without, you know, it means to go without saying that, you know, if you can do rejuvenation reasonably well and get those first like 20 years of postponement of the ill health of late life, then, you know, longevity escape velocity seems inescapable, so to speak. Um, but people don't like talking about it because they are nervous about the public reaction and nervous of being accused of, of being irresponsible and things like that. So there's still a lot, of, lot to go, um, lot to do there. And that brings me to what was actually the first part of your question, namely how experts should talk to the general public and to policymakers and decision makers and so on about time frames. It turned out that even old, even before any of this, back in '03, at the very first conference I ran in Cambridge. Um, I gave a talk, which led to a short paper, um, whose title was something like Gerontologist's Duty to Discuss Timeframes Publicly. Even back then, it was already obvious to me that the fundamental reason why we couldn't get lots more public money put into this field was that the people who would make those decisions thought we were all trying to um, swindle them, basically, that we had all these lovely arguments about how much money the, the world would save and how many lives would be saved and so on, how much suffering would be alleviated. If we could postpone aging by only, you know, a few years would be enough to get, you know, enormous amounts of benefit. But the thing is, the question is, you know, what would we need to do to get that benefit? And people back then were saying, yeah, you know, just put, you know, a few billion dollars per year into the relevant research. But unfortunately, if anyone actually said, you know what, what do you think is the probability that those few billion dollars will actually be enough? And you know, how soon are we going to get progress as a result of that investment? And how much progress are we going to get as a result of that investment? And the scientists would, would immediately clam up and refuse to answer those questions because they were terrified of being seen to be over-promising and under-delivering or anything like that. But of course, if you don't answer questions like that, then the person you're talking to is going to assume that you don't have an answer and that you actually don't believe what you told them in the first place and you're just trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And that has stayed exactly like that all this time. It's only gradually beginning to cease to be like that with a few of the more courageous um, uh, colleagues of mine who are, um, you know, um, reasonably high profile, do a lot of media, people like David Sinclair coming out and at least putting their toe in the water of this kind of thing. I um, particularly celebrated that a few, just a few weeks ago, George Church, who is another of these you know, luminaries in the field, um, was asked 
after a, after a talk he gave at the conference I was at, he was asked, you know, how soon are we going to get to longevity escape velocity? And he didn't dodge the question. He, you know, he said probably in time for most people in this room. Um, you know, so, I mean, which is, you know, not, not precisely the form of words that I would use, but it amounts to the same thing. As, as an observer who is uh, intimately within the space and in, in the capacity that I am, I find it uh, fascinating, uh, the diversity of perspectives. Like, for example, Judy Campisi, who very much has a, uh, you know, she's uh, co-authored with you and she ended up pioneering uh, the uh, senolytics as one potential modality of eliminating damage. Uh, she uh, is relatively on the more conservative end, end of the spectrum. Uh, Rich Miller, which we'll bring up later, is extremely so. He still has his, uh, on his lab webpage, uh, uh, basically a, a kind of sardonic uh, critique of a sense paradigm about to get pigs to fly, all you have to do is give them wings. And you've re re rebuttaled that. And that's a whole well, other right. question. I'm wondering whether he has. And Pedro is very outspoken website. about the same goals as you. I wonder whether Rich has his has my rebuttal on his website. No, I didn't see it. I didn't well, see it. Uh, well, and by the way, my, I have a great admiration, respect for everybody in the in in the field who makes a difference in my own belief. I believe it's going to take both traditional paradigms and sense para paradigms to get us there, and it's also going to take different messaging. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some discourse and perhaps some uh, some standards in terms of what's optimal, but that takes dialogue. And I, I think you uh, put it very well. One of your publications, it's called Scientific Debate is an Opportunity, Not a Chore. It benefits the establishment, uh, the heretic and the observer alike. 